I'm Drew Holmes. When I started learning to make music, I thought that the only way to have a career in the industry was as a performer. I could not have been more wrong. In more than 25 years in the music business, I've done many non-performing jobs from orchestra librarian to music store owner. But my experience is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm on a mission to explore the exciting and necessary jobs that make performances possible. Come with me as we go Beyond the Stage. So yeah, we're, uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. I mean, how do you begin anything with Harold Stone? Well, uh, you begin it by saying that I'm talking to a real old fellow. <laughs> and uh, uh, he's got a memory, but some of this stuff is kind of mixed up. Sure. Well, we're at the Colorado Music Educators Association Conference uh, here in Colorado Springs, which, uh, owing to that, is a lot of the reason why we have the pleasure of your company here today, because you're local. Uh, thank you very much. I've lived here for a long, long time, and uh, I think in Colorado, for the, the time that I've lived in Colorado Springs, I've been in at this hotel once a year, probably over 50 times in the last 50 years. Sure. Uh, during that time, I also moved back to uh, uh, the home office and was involved in, in things nationally for quite a while and then came back here and was still involved. Well, and with most people that I'd have sitting in that chair, I would say who they are and, you know, what they do. But in this case, you're, you're Harold Stone. Oh, I mean, my. I, I, I think full stop as far as that goes. <laughs> Either you know what that means or you don't. And uh, when I first met you, Harold, it was when I took over Boomer Music and uh, you were representing uh, Getson uh, specifically, and you do string instruments sure. as well uh, as a you know manufacturer, representative, supplier, whatever you want to call that. I mean, what would you even call your job? Well, I, I've had several different jobs in a lifetime. Uh, you start usually for a company as a district manager, and I had a district. They put me as the 18th district manager for the con company, and they had 17 for many years. I moved to Billings, Montana, and traveled uh, between South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, Idaho, and West, and from the Canadian border to the Mexican border. So I had quite a large uh, uh, area to travel. And that's where I got my first two and a half years of training. And after that, I moved back into Colorado Springs. My wife was here. I was in, in actually in two of the bands. Uh, I was in the Air Force Academy band when it was still in uh, Denver, Colorado, and they were still building the academy here. Mm -hmm. and once I got out of the Korean War, I came here and, and after being in Tokyo for a year and a half. At that place, I had gone before that. I was in the... Uh, 504th Air Force part of the band out at Pete Field and actually uh, uh, even before that and uh, we moved into Wisconsin for a while then I went overseas and they moved back into Colorado Springs the NORAD band was what that became. And, and this was as a tuba player? As a tuba player I played string bass some um, Pretty poor tuba. <laughs> well, but I played it during that how time. How good do you have yeah. to be to play tuba? <laughs> well, I, I had a lot of fun because I could play most everything by ear, too. So uh -huh. I had my own little bands with uh, uh, a system behind me, like a piano player and a drummer and another string bass player, perhaps, and whatever. Then I would play melodies and sing and do all kinds of things for, especially in Tokyo. I had a real fun time doing all that. But I played uh, for four four years I was in the Air Force bands. Uh, most of the people, when they're 19 or 18 years old, and you get to know them pretty well, and later 
these big names show up, you know, like in, in all the great bands of the world. And I was the only one that wasn't in one of those, you know, most of mm -hmm. most of my time playing tuba is. But I did know Harvey Phillips pretty well. He was my best bud for many, many years. And, and all of that, when he was uh, putting together the uh, tuba uh, Christmases, and he did all of that, uh, I was involved with him during all of that time. His first one was in Washington, D.C., uh, on the steps of, of the, uh, the big building there. And, and after that, uh, I, was in, I, I was very involved in, in the Christmas uh, tuba. Uh, tuba Christmas. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so what made you play tuba in the first place? I mean, let, let's uh, start at the beginning. How'd you, yeah, you were born at a very young age. The but beginning yeah. is uh, really, uh, for me, looking back on it, I was very, very lucky. I was in a band. Uh, my father was in the First World War, and he was uh, a builder, and we moved a lot. And every semester, I got bad grades because we didn't usually finish a semester in one spot. We moved to Roswell, New Mexico, and uh, that was when I was in about the sixth or seventh grade. And he was working for the uh, in building hangars there during the Second World War. Um, and, uh came out from the band room. I kept looking through the room and saw these instruments in the band room and I was waiting for a bus to go out toward the that academy they had there also. Um, he finally walked out and asked me if I wanted to play in the band. And uh, I said, well, I, I don't have an instrument. And he said, well, couldn't your dad buy you? And I said, no, they don't have money. Uh, so he said, well, and he handed me, he said, come on in. So he went inside and he brought me a baritone horn that really smelled awful. I mean, it, <laughs> As it was, most of them do. Uh, it was awful. <laughs> and then he said, now buzz, and I buzzed. And then he said, now you tighten up, and he go buzz. And then he said, well, you've got a great ear. <laughs> he had just met me. He never saw me before, and he was telling me he wanted me to get in that band. So then he decided I was going to play sousaphone. And he brought this sousaphone out, and I tried it, and it, it was perfect, except I, it could barely hold it up. But, uh, two weeks later, I was in the uh, uh, high school band, because he wanted another person of five. I was the fifth one, and the other four tubers in that are sousaphone players. Uh -huh. We're sitting in the back, and I was holding this horn. However, I hadn't learned quite how to play it very well. But that's what started me. And by the way, the truth of the matter was he had been in a, a very famous band, uh, John Philip Sousa's band, and he played solo clarinet with them. And no, that's who the... That's not a bad chair to be in. That, that, uh, that's the one that started me in music and told me how great I was before he knew me. So that kind of built a, a living for the rest of my life. And, and uh, especially today, my... The big push that while I'm on talking to you folks, you're in the business of um, music education. Mm -hmm. And music education is not something that uh, is uh, being talked about very much, neither is art, any of the arts these days. It's very important to realize what a child gets in the first grade. Um, being in the first grade and starting uh, to uh, count and uh, say two and two is four, and that's a ABC, and you do know your ABCs, don't you, little first grader? 
But we teach those things in the first grade with music. And you do that by uh, making a whole note. And uh, when I first started, I figured, well, we'll just do this whole big group here and uh, we'll put them together and we'll stomp. So you say one, two, three, four, and then do it again. And let's do our hands now and clap. And this time you go, that's fast. That means that the whole note, and you draw this thing up there that used to be a hole, but now it's a four beats. And those four beats can be very slow or they can be very short. In other words, we've taught them that. Then when you cut it in half, it's two and two. And from there it goes to uh, one and one in quarter notes. And we're taking it faster than you would in, of course, a school room. But at the end of uh, four or five weeks, in the first, second, or third grade, they learn how to uh, add and subtract and study the ABCs. Every principal of every school and every superintendent and all of the teachers should keep this in mind. That's what we're here for, is to open the door and teach the whole world of what we're getting out of first grade. In the very first grade, this is participating by in, in force because you have all these little kids together that look at each other and count to one to four at least mm -hmm. and sometimes do fractions because when the last time you cut that thing in half and you have you have eight notes in there so in the first and second and third grade we're teaching reading writing and arithmetic yeah and, yeah they're, and they're learning math and fractions from, there, and, and, from the very right. very beginning well, without you don't have to formally call it yes. that in order to learn yes uh, to me, uh, it was pretty simple. Uh, uh, later on, uh, you entertain the thought of being in, you know, marching bands and all these different things. And if you want to think about a marching band as being a nonsense, that's incorrect. To fly an airplane, you use your eyes, your breathing, your hands, your listening, all of these things at one time and staying between the beats of the uh, airplane as I mean, they will tell you how far you are from the middle of that line and so on. That's what we do in marching bands. Uh, I don't think it's a great thing for your lips and chops uh, to march up and down playing a, a tuba or whatever. Not necessarily. But yeah. on the other hand, uh, what it really does is number one, it can be the PE of your school. Mm -hmm. And because uh, you do a lot of work, I mean, oh, you're, yeah. you're working, you're staying in line two ways, you're taking directions from up here, you either memorize the stuff or you have to read it with a, a liar out in front of you. All of these things are being done. And you have, uh, as a clarinet player, you'd be working here, you'd be breathing, you'd be uh, walking, you'd be staying in line in all different directions. Uh, that's what you do when you uh, fly an airplane. About the same thing. Yeah. Well, and I was talking with one of the teachers of my territory just this week about this. I've never been able to concentrate as beautifully and as completely as I have been when I was in a marching band. Yes. Because not only you're making music, but you've got movement. You know, there's the artistry of that. And frankly, there's the danger of injury. Absolutely. I mean, if, if you're not completely in the moment and on and focusing on that task and only that task, yes. things could go horribly wrong. That's true. And, and have. Uh, you see that, um, of course, the reason that marching bands are not done on the big TV sets of today is the sound uh, preparation for most bands is very, very poor. 
and that's the reason that they quit doing halftime shows. It's okay in person, but when you make that turn and it's never mic'd properly or whatever right. it might be, suddenly that was taken away from the middle of the football uh, games. And so we're not really being heard by large quantities of folks as a band. Uh, but but you are when you're a marching band. Well, and the thing that kind of tried to turn that around a little bit, I, I mentioned this because I was literally watching it last night with my boys, was uh, Blast. Yes. If you, you remember that one, the, the stage show that came out yes. of Star of Indiana. And, but that was mic'd properly. That was blocked properly. The cameras were in the right space because it was a stage performance. Right. It was like a play, like a musical. And that, I think, did a lot to bring that kind of to the masses, if you will. Um, but... The, the follow-up to that wasn't there necessarily. I mean, you've got Winter Garden, you've got you know uh, DCI, and you've got all of that kind of stuff, but it's it's not mainstream. You know, the other part that uh, a young person gets from that is, have you ever heard them say, no, you, that's one and three, that's not one and two. So they actually help each other mm -hmm. in a group of, and and the, uh, it's, it's just like singing songs. You're a soprano, you're an alto, you're a tenor or a bass. Same thing in a band. And But you're doing this, but it, it's a congregation of folks that talk to each other about it as well as play it. And once in a while it comes out so beautiful you don't even know where it came from. Oh, yeah, you, you develop your own language with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I reminisce from a time you know, back in my background. Um, we were, my brass quintet in college was playing Parents Weekend and um, we were doing Trumpeter's Lullaby. Yeah. And the joke that I you know, said to the audience, I said, well, we're gonna do Trumpeter's Lullaby and I'm playing the solo because uh, I buy the music. And, <laughs> but it, it was, I've never played it better before or since than that one time. I mean, I've played it well, don't get me wrong, but yes. it was just the connection between the audience and what I was and doing. And being on the stage, my friend. Oh, yeah. Uh, being on the free, you might have 50, 60, 70 people on that same, but you feel like you're there by yourself. It's exciting, uh -huh. it's beautiful, and you do feel that that position of being in front of of what what you're doing. Uh, you reminded me, though, Rafael Mendez, uh, as you well know, is number one trumpet player in my lifetime. I don't think anybody ever played uh, as well as Rafael Mendez. He started in New Mexico and uh, he was actually uh, played bugle for the Mexican government at, at that time. Went to the studios and uh, I got to know him pretty well because I, when I got out of the service, we moved into New Mexico and he played a lot of concerts. And, and he introduced me one time from his pulpit up at uh, um, one of the towns in New Mexico. And he said, you know, there's one guy here I'm really mad at all the time. He said, usually I play with my twin sons, and we did this, uh, this tune that you were just talking about uh, as a, a trio. And uh, when they're not with me, well, I use other people. And he said, every time I come to New Mexico, I'm using something uh, that says either con on it or, or some other name. And he says, that's not what I sell. And he pointed me out down there, and he said, that's a guy. <laughs> Uh, later that night, of course, we spent having dinner with he and his sons and his wife and my, and my twins, and we both had twins. So uh, I was, I've known a lot of folks. I'm getting old, but, <laughs> but during that time, that's one of the special people in my life was Rafael Mendez. Uh, today, uh, Alan Vazzuti would come closer to that probably uh -huh. than any of the other players in the world. And he was also... Uh, 
I saw him play when he was very young. He was a dealer in Missoula, Montana, his dad was, and he taught him how to play. And he plays the same kind of things that uh, Rafael Mendez played, of course. Well, and you reminded me of one of my favorite stories about you. Uh, this was at, uh, at DU, um, at the uh, Mendez Institute uh, a few years back. Yeah. And we were displaying there, and so were you. Uh, you had you know, with Getson. And um, I'm over there helping you set up your booth because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be helpful. And a gentleman walks over to you and says, Harold, how have you been? Haven't seen you in forever. And you're like, oh, it's good. Good to see you on and so you, you, you small talk, he walks away, you turn to me and say, who was that? And I look at you and I said, that was Ron Rom, one of the founding members of the Canadian Brass, one of my original trumpet heroes. Yes. And I, not that I, I didn't have context for, I mean, you, you've had such a great life in music, but not only... Have you been doing this long enough that Ron Rom knows who you are? Yes. You've been doing it long enough that you didn't recognize Ron Rom. <laughs> well, the tuba player uh, with that same group. Uh, uh, yeah, the, Chuck. Uh, uh, just Dalibach. wonderful, wonderful musicians. And I could not remember where I had met that man. But, you know. Let's take a quick time out to hear from our sponsors. Beyond the Stage is proudly sponsored by Boomer Music Company, Northern Colorado's band and orchestra experts since 1976. If you need instrument rentals, repairs, sheet music, or accessories, Boomer Music has you covered. Come to our Fort Collins showroom or visit us online at www.boomermusiccompany.com. Thepodcastingstore.com is your one-stop shop for all things podcasting and remote learning and a proud sponsor of Beyond the Stage. Whether you're a novice remote teacher or a veteran podcaster, we have the gear and the knowledge to take your content to the next level to better engage your audience. Check us out at www.thepodcastingstore.com and see what solutions we have for you. Now, let's continue our journey beyond the stage. I have met people at times, but then you won't see them for two or three years. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but, uh, you know, in, in uh, jazz, um, I don't know who the greatest jazz trumpet player is in the world, but who would you say would be to you? Alive or ever? Well, alive. Alive? Ugh. I mean, the immediate name, of course, is Winton. Yeah. I mean, he's got to uh, be on the list. He's on the list, but he's not my favorite. Uh, not because of his playing, his kind of attitude, maybe. I don't. I'm not sure, but. I, and I, I haven't had the opportunity to meet him, um, and, and so that that's kind of you know when I, I look yeah. at just the the body of work that's presented to the public. Oh, I he's a fine that, player. Yeah, no doubt about that. And of course, uh, Doc Severinsen. Yes. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Doc, but he's used me no matter who he worked for. Uh-huh. Uh Before every concert, Doc has to get into the auditorium when there's nobody there and point his trumpet at every corner and every window and every place in the place. And I was the chosen one when I was available. Every time I'd run into him at a meeting in like one in Austin, Texas twice, and I couldn't get rid of him. And he said, well, I need you on Sunday afternoon. It was at the uh, uh, college band director, National Association or something like that. Because I'm, I'm, I need you to, you know, and you have somebody walk around away from him. He's the only one on the stage. You're the only one in the auditorium. Yeah. I said, well, Doc, uh, it's going to change. Uh, he said, no, what I'm doing, and of course I've done it before for him all over the country. 
But I said, well, I can't do that because my sister lives in Seguin, New Mexico, and I've got a visitor. I don't see her very often, and we're going to have lunch. It was a Sunday afternoon. And he said, well, he said she can't come. He didn't want anybody there. And I said, well, then I won't come. I can't do that. I have to go see my sister. And uh, he said, I said, well, you know, do you want them to be here? And he said, well, if they come over here, they can't say a word. That's what he told me really, truly. So he didn't. I didn't. I said a lot. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, some of those things I didn't repeat right, right well, now. And I got to meet Doc, uh, this is when I was still in Naples, Florida, uh, yeah. doing library work for the Naples Philharmonic, and he, we did a Pops concert for our Millennium concert. Um, and so Eric Kunzel was conducting, and Doc was the guest artist, and they did you know, rehearsals, all that kind of stuff. Well, he comes in, uh, it's 4 p.m., December 31st, 1999, yeah. walks into the library and says, do you have a phone book? I said, yeah. And I, I know today people don't use phone books. He's like, well, I need a plater. I'm like, a what? He's like, I need to get my mouthpiece replated. I'm like, the downbeat is in six hours. What are yeah. you doing? He's going to get his mouthpiece replated just before the Millennium concert. Unbelievable. But he's, what struck me about Doc, I mean, he's you know, slight build, but he was fit. You know, the other Wiry. part of that, though, when he played, it was his exercise. He would play, uh, even the days of a concert, he would practice yeah. at least seven or eight hours. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, oh, yeah. every concert. And if he didn't play, he didn't play as well. Absolutely. There's just, he has this nervous energy about him yeah. that it, you just need to get it out. Uh, I, he, he knew that I had been in bands with some of the people that were in his band, but they were grown-up adult people. And, like, uh, you know, the lead alto sax player there was Walt Levinsky. And Levinsky uh, was in an Air Force band with me out here at Pete Field in Colorado Springs. But, you know, you don't know if at age 18 or 19, those people are in it. He and, uh, and the tenor player on that thing was uh, the other clarinet player, and he played beautifully. And I think he's still, I can't remember his name right now, but all of these people, you look back from a lifetime of doing it, and the neat, neat people. That's the other part of being a musician. I think that it's, uh, it makes you uh, appreciate people. Mm -hmm. and, and, and their depth is not necessarily you don't have to play as well as they do or this or that or whatever. When they open the door, it's their whole life. It's their life and your life, and that's what you look at. Uh, I'm very proud to have been playing in that area, but well, and you look at how inclusive of an activity music can be. Yes. I mean, it it doesn't care, you know, rich, poor, black, white, male, female. It doesn't matter. It's it's the will to create something that's right. like that, that. That's really all you need. I totally agree because, well, the other part of, of course, my lifestyle as a child is after, in depressions and things like that. My dad was in the First World War. And yeah. My brothers were in the Second and on and on. But... Uh, during that time, we were not rich people. Uh, times were tough. I mean, we went through some awfully hard, hard times. I don't remember it being that way. My parents did the best they could to feed us, to do whatever they needed to do in my family. And I was a family of five kids. Uh, I was kind of in the middle of it. My, I have one sister and four brothers, and I'm the only one left out of that. Well, in doing some quick math in my head, you would have become a teenager while the war was still going on. Yes. What was that like? Well, uh, actually, the first, the second World War, uh, 
I was born in 1932. So, right. And my dad was actually, he was in France. Um, and he was a mule skinner, as they called him. At that. He ran mules and dynamite and made bridges and all of that stuff. And back that time, of course, Russians and the... Uh, uh, all of the different folks were fighting their battles, you know, between sure. that and, and Germans primarily. And here we were in that area. Uh, I said, well, what did you eat for meat? We didn't have airplanes to bring you food. He said, well, I would trade. Uh, and maybe that's where I learned how to trade stuff. He spoke. <laughs> yeah. well, but, we'll but get said, to your ability. He, he to said, that, yeah, yeah. In, in France, uh, where, the, where he was for three and a half years, uh, he said some of the women needed flour and sugar and some of the stuff we had, so they would maybe trade us for a, maybe a pig or maybe a, a chicken or whatever they had, and sometimes maybe a mule. Did you ever try to eat a mule? I have not had the pleasure. <laughs> I would bet on not having another bite. <laughs> that was something I couldn't get used to. So, sounds like something you need to cook a really long yeah. time. I've taken a lot of your time, my friend. Oh, no, no. If, if you've got the time, we can keep going. Well, uh, you can take everything out of here you want, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, overall, my big uh, push for a lifetime, and including the con company, I became a... Yeah, I was going to say, you, you were in the service band, and then then what happened then after I, that? Then I decided, you know, I, I have to have a job. I got twin kids that I didn't see till they were a year and a half old and and uh, I got to make a living so I went to Albuquerque New Mexico and all over town I went to the same music stores over and over again and said I gotta get a job I, I have to make a living and uh, I think I was 22 at the time but I was unprepared to be doing anything uh, finally the man said you've been in here five times and I said well this is the fifth time and I read in a book that uh, that uh, a sale is uh, you can make it uh, every every fifth time you're gonna make a sale out of out of five times and I've been in here I'd come in here 20 times so I might get five jobs in a row you know <laughs> and the guy looked at me really funny and his name is Bernie May he said well why don't you look around go look in the drawers and we'll try you out for a couple of weeks and 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 I started going through the drawers and things but that afternoon I met everybody between there and the front door and said, uh, good morning, good afternoon, whatever it was. I didn't ask them questions, and that's the one thing in uh, selling I learned to do very, from the very beginning. You don't want to answer your own questions, so don't ask them a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. May I help you? No, I've got a knee problem, but I'm not that old, <laughs> you know. So you, you well, don't go through all of this stuff that most folks do. Uh, when somebody came in and asked, uh, say, for a clarinet, and that that lady is uh, there with the little girl, and the only thing I wanted to do was ask him, what is your name, little girl? But I'd say it in another way. I'd say, uh, is your name Mary? No, my name is uh, Velvet, or whatever it might be. I said, Velvet, uh, I understand you want to play the clarinet, and here's the only one, and you only put one of those on the on the table at one time, of course. You yep. don't put two or three, because that's another decision-making time. This is what we rent, and you put a new one there to start with. Uh, and it costs you so much a month, and so much of that goes toward the purchase price if you decide to sure. stay with it, and if she plays good, and I said, okay, Velvet, 
why don't we do this? Uh, why don't you hold your clarinet, and I'd close the clarinet down, and you hold it. And the mother says, oh, well, she hasn't ever done it. Well, it's going to be hers. She's going to start holding it. And so you stand over here, and you hold your clarinet, and your mom is going to sit down here and fill out the paperwork. And then zip it. Don't say another word. Because the fear, and this is the big point in selling for me, the fear is that you're going to get a no. Right. They didn't come in there for a no. They came no. in there to write a clarinet. Well, and this is what I try to um, you know, instill in the staff, especially yes. if they don't have any experience with customer service, is what we do is fantastic because everyone that walks through that door has pre-qualified themselves. Yes. They have a vague idea of what they need. That's they right. have a vague idea of what we do and they're pretty sure that the two things are in alignment. That's right. So as opposed to like working at a department store or something like that where people are just browsing. So you know, rather than saying, can I help you? No, I mean, the, the, what I usually, if you're gonna you know, open up with a, a greeting like that is, what can I help you find? Yes. Uh, I will make the statement. I will show you anything in the place that's the best place in town to look around. Yeah. Why not? Uh, be affirmative. Uh, that takes the negativity out of it. Uh, and the sooner you find this out as a young person, uh, I taught a lot of sales training during the time at Con. We had a lot of meetings every year with a lot of people coming into our company and doing those kind of things. And then I would go into the college. Uh, I was in 400 colleges the last four years I was with Con, the last three years. And uh, You should be very educated. Uh, I actually ended up uh, on the front row there most of the time. <laughs> but I found out one thing, that most of the people that go to the methods classes are being taught by people that have never really taught in a public school. There's somebody working on a uh, doctor's degree or they're working on a master's maybe or whatever. They're being paid for already, so they stick them into this job teaching people how to teach 40 little kids that all had different fingerings the first day. They just rented the instruments from somebody and here they are and they got up on this podium. What do you say to them first? And I would ask that question many times. They didn't know yet. And they were about to go to, go to the teaching field. Uh, much of that was being done by the factories and uh, yeah. including Selmer, Khan, all of these people. Uh, I got a call from uh, Years ago, when I was still with the con company, I got a call from the band director in Philadelphia at one of the colleges there, and he said, we want you to be a, a guest speaker for our, uh, our national meeting for the uh, College Band Directors Association, I mean, from the whole country. And I was thrilled to even be thought of for something sure. like that. And I had been in his methods classes before a couple of times. and. Um, I said, well, boy, that would be a, a pleasure, but I'm not sure I'm good enough for that, to do that for you. And he said, well, he said, there's a catch. I want you to pick out uh, four more people from different companies, your competitors, and invite them to come with you because we're going to use five, five speakers the first morning of the meeting. <laughs> The first one I called was Bill Ludwig Jr. and I got him. <laughs> of course, he, he he went. A guy from LeBlanc, uh, he had been the uh, uh, Navy uh, uh, commander at the Navy School of Music for a long time too, and so he went. And uh, who else? Uh, there's a man in a wheelchair from Selmer uh, that had 
done a lot of things for teachers, and he went. So we we had a meeting, and we had a, a really great time of it. Uh, so they hired you to be the contractor and the band leader. Yeah, and and then I had to supervise, sort of. You yeah. know, <laughs> I was I, boy. I learned on the spot, but before it was over, um, the, it was a beautiful thing for me. But on the other hand, it was also really good. And I found out at that time that all of these people were that most of the teaching for teachers is done on the pulpit from the band directors teaching the teachers. Yeah. Uh, not usually in the Methodist. You can't do enough in a Methodist. It's too bad. Uh, there were, uh, I think San Diego State had, uh, Dr. Savage was the lady's name, it was head of that department, and, and she actually would go and hire people from very successful people that taught from grade school, middle schools, and high schools. And she had those people teaching her methods classes, and that was at San Diego State way back when. But those are the things that the companies have added to, I mean the large manufacturing companies yeah. have added to the, uh, the educational system, a, a great part of it. Sure. So you were working at a store, and then, so how Okay, after you, the store. Yeah, where did where'd you end up from there? Uh, I wanted to go at Com, and I put a, uh, and I bugged the crap out of them for three or four years, what? and finally. Why that company? Uh, it was the largest in the world, okay. and the most, uh, and it also, uh, they and Selmer were the two that did most of the educational training. Uh -huh. And I'd been to one of their sales uh, uh, sales schools in about the second year I was with that Bernie Mays music. And uh, I found out at that time there was a man by the name of Jack Eccles. Uh, Bill Eccles, his father, was later my boss and hired me uh, to work for them. But Jack Eccles gave me so many of the thoughts that I have just talked to you about uh -huh. came from a man by the name of Jack Eccles. I'm glad that came back around to this before I finished it because he he was wonderful. He was in Canada uh, organizing young bands and band directors when he passed away. Yeah. Many back years ago. Khan was uh, the largest and I, it just it was just happened to be the one I thought the most of. Sure. When I was selling retail at that time, they were the most helpful of any of the companies. Well, and, and but that matters. You know, speaking as a retailer, yes. um, the representatives from the company are oh, as important, if not in some cases more important than the product. Yes. I mean, it's, it's the same thing when we talk about. I mean, anyone who has done music for any length of time will talk about a teacher, an instructor, someone that inspired them and kept them in. And conversely, I heard this a lot, uh, a little bit more when I lived on Long Island. But I think it's just the greater population density. The number of people that would quit band because they didn't like their director. I mean, teachers have a huge responsibility at building and continuing what's going on here. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Stage. If you have ideas for future episodes or work in a non-performing role in the music industry and would like to tell your story, please contact me at drew at boomermusiccompany.com. I'm Drew Holmes. Thank you for listening as we explore careers in music beyond the stage. <laughs>